0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK.
1: Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our videocast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. In 2006, the American Board of Anesthesiology acknowledged hospice and palliative medicine as a fellowship track and saw its first fellow graduate in 2008 yet anesthesiologists only make up 2% of board certified hospice and palliative medicine providers according to the American Board of Medical Specialties. Why is this so? My name is Dr. Mike Wadley. I'm a CA3 resident at the University of Kentucky. And here with me to explore the integral yet complex relationships between anesthesiology and hospice and palliative care are Dr. Rebecca Oslikson and Dr. Joanne Hunsberger. Dr. Oslikson is the Division Chief of Critical Care Medicine in the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative Medicine at Stanford University. She is an established researcher and author of multiple publications. She is triple boarded in anesthesiology, critical care, and hospice and palliative medicine. And she sits on the American Society of Anesthesiology Committee for Palliative Medicine, which she helped found. Dr. Joanne Hunsberger is a pediatric anesthesiologist who is also fellowship trained in hospice and palliative medicine. She is an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Doctors, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me, Dr. Waddle.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: All right, so let's begin our conversation with a statue. In Boston Common, there is a statue called the Ether Monument, or the Good Samaritan. Constructed 20 years after William Morton's first public display at the Ether Dome, it commemorates the gift of anesthesia, represents the role anesthesiologists play in their patients' care. Put simply, it celebrates anesthesiology as dedicated to the relief of suffering. The practice of anesthesiology has certainly become more sophisticated and the patients more complex, but the ethos of our specialty remains the same, an ethos sharing many attributes with those of hospice and private medicine. Dr. Ozickson, You once offered your own simplified definition of palliative care in an article for the Monitor in November, 2020. A few questions. First, could you please share with us your definition? And second, for our listeners, what distinguishes palliative care from hospice medicine? And last, broadly speaking, what parallels have you drawn between anesthesiology and hospice and palliative medicine?
0: Sure. Let me, three-part question, I'll take the first part first. So palliative medicine is both a philosophy of care and a structured way of delivering clinical care, the primary goal of which is to reduce suffering, regardless of patient prognosis, diagnosis, or um, uh, current state. Uh, Palliative care, by definition, is interprofessional multidisciplinary care. Um, it's also care not only for the patient, but also f- recognizing that they're part of a unit within a family and a community. Um, so I really break it down that palliative care has three core components. One is attentive symptom management, so pain, nausea, constipation, diarrhea, anxiety, depression, anorexia, fatigues, drowsiness, any of those we... Um, look at very closely and evidence supports that we improve patient symptom scores across all of those when you start practicing palliative care or involving palliative care subspecialists. So attentive symptom management. Um, Second is uh, psychosocial support of families because when patients get sick, families get sick. So to do right by the patient, you have to do right by the family. And we spend a lot of time with families and helping them to, uh, conceptualize their new life with a patient who's sick and how it changes how they define their role as a family and their, the patient's role in that family as well as just how that whole family structure interacts with the world. And then the third thing is expert communication skills. So particularly when folks get seriously ill, they can have limited energy, they can have limited um, uh, time even during the day that they can actually do things. Um, So how do you prioritize that and think about really what's important to me and how do I want to spend whatever energy, whatever time I have? And also to given my own unique medical conditions and the amount of information I want to have about that and what might be data around that, how do I prioritize medical care? So the three things, um, attentive symptom management, psychosocial support of the family and expert communication skills. So um, believe your second question was, remind me again?
1: <laughs> what distinguishes uh, palliative care from hospice? From hospice. Sure.
0: So um, hospice is actually within palliative care. It's one domain essentially. So there are eight domains. When you look at the consensus project for quality palliative care that defines what palliative care is, there are eight domains. There is physical support of the patient, a um, really physical support patient and family, but physical support. Um, so physical symptoms, psychological symptoms, uh, social um, experiences, um, spiritual distress um, and spiritual experiences, um, um, cultural sensitivity, cult- providing culturally competent care, ethical and legal aspects of care, and um, um, uh, care for patients approaching the end of life. I think I got all eight in there. But um, the the one domain is care for the patients approaching the end of life. So we do care for a lot of patients who are approaching death and maybe, starting to actively die. Hospice is specifically, it's a actually a mode of providing care. It's a legal structure within Medicare that allows for a certain type of medical care to be provided. Um, although there are exceptions in pediatrics, um, as well as in some waiver programs, in general, hospice care in the United States is only provided to individuals w- who are determined by Two individuals, um, physicians, nurse practitioners, I think PAs also can do it. They sign what's called a CTI, a Certification of Terminal Illness, which means based on their medical judgment, um, they believe the patient has less than six months to live. And with that, then the patient can qualify for hospice. I could get into more details because it's essentially how Medicare is built. Um, But essentially what hospice is doing is providing um, comfort prioritized care specifically for the illness and the diagnosis that is the patient's life-limiting illness. So um, if you have, say, uh, a patient that has um, widely metastatic cancer and has a pathologic fracture uh, due to a met, due to a tumor met, that would be cared for under their hospice care. If they had a fracture just because they fell on the ice and had nothing to do with their cancer, that actually wouldn't be cared for by hospice. That would be billed to Medicare through another part. But hospice is really specifically for patients and families who are approaching the end of life with less than six months to live. Palliative care, as I said, for anybody, um, as long as they have a serious illness and it's affecting their quality of life, we can help care for them. It's provided concurrent with life-prolonging treatments on a regular basis. I mean, I'm an ICU doctor, take care of a lot of patients pursuing very aggressive life-prolonging interventions, and yet they have incredibly high palliative care needs as well. Uh, On the last part, your last question was how do anesthesiologists contribute to that, correct? Or how can we be a part of that? So um, it's actually, anesthesia is absolutely wonderful specialty to come from to be a palliative care doctor um, or a palliative care practitioner, um, because a lot of what you use as far as drugs in palliative care are absolutely in our core drugs for anesthesiologists. I remember when I was taking my, my boards for the first time in 2010, um, in the room before I was watching a bunch of non-anesthesiologists cramming about ketamine. And it was like, oh, come on, like, you know, like, ketamine, you know? So, but I mean, narcotics, um, anxiolytics, anti emetics, you know, um, I mentioned narcotics, even more narcotics, non narcotic pain management approaches. Um, uh, Those are a big part of what we know as anesthesiologists, and they are a huge part of our, our toolkit as palliative care practitioners. So, anesthesiologists are incredibly well trained to be palliative care practitioners. Um, I think there's a fair number of cultural and pragmatic reasons why not there are not more anesthesiologists who do practice palliative care, but um, a lot don't even know that it's there. I mean, as you already brought up, palliative care was ACGMA recognized in 2006, and the first boards were offered in 2008, so a lot of people just aren't aware of it, and there's evidence that supports still a lot of um, practitioners um, falsely conflate palliative care in hospice, and so they think, well, I don't want to be a hospice doctor, I can't do palliative care, and it's like, well first off, you could be a hospice doc if you wanted to. You you could be trained for that. um, There are opportunities for that, but absolutely, you could be a palliative care clinician, even if you don't want to do hospice. There's, as I said, one domain that's patients for care uh, care for patients approaching the end of life. There's seven other domains that comprise palliative care, and so there's a lot to be done.
1: Dr. Hunsberger, my first question for you is just to ask you to explore your relationship between hospice and palliative medicine and anesthesiology. How did you come to know about hospice and palliative medicine, get interested in it, and ultimately pursue it, having a background in anesthesiology?
2: So for me, I started in anesthesia. And just, just the field of anesthesia is so diverse. You care for everybody, from the itty-bitty tiny babies to the oldest of our old, and I think that's, we, we we just care for everyone, and as part of caring for everyone, I decided to specialize in pediatric anesthesiology, and that's been really exciting profession. Um, we're not quite as specialized in pediatric anesthesia as some of my adult colleagues are here at Johns Hopkins, and so we, again, get to care for a real diverse group of people, and then from there, I practice on the pediatric acute pain service. And so as I think of our pediatric acute pain service, we take care of the acute pain that's just immediately post-op, so post-op pain. And then we take care of a lot of patients who have chronic pain issues, who come to a hospital with a non-pain issue, but were asked to help manage their chronic pain. And then the third population that we see a lot of are patients who are in oncology. And so a lot of oncology pain, mucositis or tumor related pain, tumor burden, um, cancer treatment related pain. And it was that population that I just really grew to have a lot of concern for um, and really wanting to find different ways to be a value to their care team. And I recognized at some point that palliative was, in, in in a way, filling that role of taking care of patients' pain and symptom management, and also really working to be able to have great discussions with their patients. And so that was um, kind of a, an awakening for me, and I really wanted to learn more about that and bring those skills into my practice as an acute pain physician. And what I found, of course, as we always find in our training, many we learn many things, is that that training of a hospice and palliative physician has been valuable to my work as an educator, certainly the listening and communicating and as someone who deals not just with patients but with patients family members for pretty much every single patient encounter as a pediatric anesthesiologist i work with patients and also parents and so just really trying to see the patient as a as part of a family unit with all the decisions that every every uh, patient and their family makes and so that's 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 kind of how I got to hospice and palliative medicine. And that's where I think that I find value in it in my daily practice.
1: Having explored the definition and qualities of hospice and palliative medicine and how it relates to anesthesia, I think that this is a good point to kind of delve more into um, anesthesiology as a spe- the subspecialties of anesthesiology. So, um, between the symptoms management, specifically with our pharmacological know how and our expert communication skills, uh, between between surgeons and such, yeah, it seems very easy to draw similarities between anesthesiology and hospice palliative and medicine. Mm-hmm. And despite that um, abounding similarity, some subspecialties of anesthesiology definitely seem to render themselves more easily to the practice of HPM, or uh, excuse me, hospice palliative medicine. Many of my fellow residents here at the University of Kentucky and myself would look to our time in the ICU as the obvious example. Um, with the difficult family conversations and navigating the end-of-life decisions. Chronic pain may be another seemingly obvious example. With other subspecialties or practices, it seems more difficult to appreciate without firsthand experience. So do you have any insight into other subspecialties such as pediatric anesthesiology or um, some of the other subspecialties that would also benefit from uh, training in hospice and palliative medicine or vice versa?
0: Sure. Well, I first would encourage listeners to look at the November 2020 ASA monitor issue. That monthly issue had a whole special section on palliative care where there were different subspecialists who talked about the intersection of palliative care and their subspecialty field. So yes, there was critical care there. There was pain. Um, There's also pediatric anesthesia. So I, I do encourage people to look at that. Um, uh, at that ASA monitor app issue um, to read more about this topic. So that was uh, no uh, November, 2020. So um, there's a lot of places in anesthesia subspecialties where palliative care crosses over. First off, as anesthesiologists, we do a ton of palliative care in our day-to-day practice that I think a lot of people aren't even aware of. When you are treating a person's pain, um, and checking on them post-op and, oh, you're, you're nauseated. Well, let, let me make some recommendations. And you're giving antiemetics or, you know, you run into the patient's spouse in the hospital cafeteria. You're like, oh, how are you coping? How are you doing? Or you're in the, in the PACU, you see the patient's family member, their children coming in and, oh, you know, your mom's over here. How are you guys doing? I mean, you're providing support to families and that's palliative care, you know? So there's a lot of what we call primary palliative care, which is palliative care that's provided by individuals who are not subspecialty-trained in palliative care. We do a ton of palliative care. We do a ton of primary palliative care as anesthesiologists. It's just part of our day-to-day practice. So one of the things I often try to encourage people to do is to lean in to the palliative care that they're already doing, see it, accept it, and if you like it, do even more of it because you already know how. So really embrace that role. When the Committee for Palliative Care within the ASA was um, formed by Sarah Jebauer, um, like 2014, 2015, one of the first things that she did within the committee was to do a survey of the ASA membership to see which um, ASA members uh, were also boarded in palliative care. And the biggest group uh, was pain anesthesiologists. That, that group by far um, was the subspecialty group that had the most palliative care boarding. And it's not surprising to do good palliative care, even specialist palliative care. You need blocks. You need to partner with pain uh, practitioners who can provide blocks that are a key part of managing some of the pain, especially complex pain for these patients. And so um, pain anesthesiologists are already often a part of good palliative care practice. Um, There's actually a ton of palliative care in pediatrics. Think of the patient in the family unit. How many times do you see families um, in great distress when their child is needing surgery, or is sick, Um, and it could be anxiety in the pre-op area, it can be in the post-op area. You know, when you are supporting that family and and helping that child and that within that family unit also to have the least amount of anxiety possible and to have the best possible perioperative experience, you're providing palliative care. You're increasing their quality of life, improving their quality of life, particularly if they're getting surgery for an an illness, a serious illness that might be impairing their quality of life. So, um, and also of note, pediatric palliative care as opposed to palliative care for adults is currently there are pediatric palliative care subspecialists, but a lot of pediatric palliative care is provided by the primary teams. Um, so a lot of, say, um, uh, uh, pediatric hematologist oncologists will also be providing palliative care. Pediatric anesthesiologists providing Ton of palliative care when you're talking about pain management. So, pediatric pain anesthesiologists, they might as well do a palliative care fellowship as well because they're already doing a ton of palliative care.
1: This is a perfect point to turn it back over to Dr. Hunsberger. Being a subspecialist in pediatric anesthesiology, um, and I assume pediatric hospice and palliative medicine, what sort of nuances do you find uh, and to tell our audiences when dealing with pediatric patients as opposed to adults?
2: So for pediatric patients, when a parent is making a decision about the long-term care of a child, uh, they have to understand, and and they do understand how that's going to affect the other children in their family. They may not be able to provide uh, trach care for a child because they may possibly have another child who has um, needs and or they may have a child who has excelled in a specific sport and and they realize that they would have to have their other child give up their passions in order to care for a child that's um, that has a severe medical illness. So anytime A parent makes these life altering decisions about how to care for their child, they have to think of that child as not just the child, but as a child as a unit inside the family. And so any major, any major medical decision is not just about the individual, it's about that group. Um, I I mentioned the example of a trach, if when a child, when when parents decide to place a trach in their child, if that's what that child needs to survive, that child then needs 24-hour care. And so then you have parents who would have to be at the bedside of that child, especially because nursing care has been really hard to get. Medical care can be very expensive. So if parents are paying for medical care for a severely ill child, they may not have the resources to put into caring for other children. Parents may no longer be able to have two jobs, and so they may have to make other decisions in terms of their finances to be able to hold their household together. So those are some ways that I can think that we as hospice and palliative physicians think about the child as a unit within a family. It's not just a decision that affects the individual, but it's really a group of people that's there to support that severely ill child.
1: I think to say these patients and our relationships with them are complex it is putting very lightly. These interactions surely require a lot of effort, empathy, and time, yet, One common criticism I often hear when I'm talking about palliative care uh, medicine amongst anesthesia anesthesia providers is that it just doesn't pay as well. The classic, there's simply no money in it. So one question I have for you um, is, one, what is your response to that? And, And two, sort of to incentivize people to go into it, what sort of value, financial or not, do you see palliative care... Uh, bring to the table for patients, for hospitals, for any stakeholders.
2: As a palliative provider, we do not get paid in the same way as we do get paid as an anesthesia provider, and we see those discrepancies in medicine all over the place, where one specialty is valued financially more than another. That's gonna—that's you know a problem that I don't know that I have an answer to, but I think. And, and so you have, you as a provider have to decide if that's something that you're willing to accept or not. But I think the institution has found value in the subspecialty. And I think COVID maybe even help, helped us find more value in palliative providers. Um, the palliative providers were just really able to find ways to communicate with patients and their families in a time of great need for the institution. So I really, I, uh, many of our anesthesiologists are also intensivists so i think they also saw the value in those relationships while they were providing care to our covid patients so i think some of those relationships were built so i think that helps the institution to build bridges and and find the value in that particular subspecialty we can talk about the money savings of palliative medicine but it you know i, I don't think that's ever the first thing I wanna think about in terms of patient care. I just think patients are cared for better when somebody is sitting down and listening to them and talking to them and understanding what it is that the patient truly values and what it is that the family truly values, what gives a patient and their family meaning. So patients and their families feel heard. So not only is the patient satisfaction increasing, but I think the patient care is improving. You're, I don't think we're ever going to be able to put that into the true dollars that it deserves. So I think we, you need an institution that's going to be able to recognize that. Um, it, it is helpful when folks do studies to show the financial... A help that the palliative medicine gives, but I think we just know as people who have all at some point needed health care in our lives to have a physician and a care team who listens to us and cares for us in a way that is concurrent with our values that that adds value to the to the patient. So Dr.
1: Osetson, do you have anything, Dan? Um palliative care is
0: not as well um, financed. it is not as well paid as, as anesthesiologists, very few things are, Um, as far as, you know, personal wellness and feeling mission-driven and feeling like you are getting up every day and making the world a better place, you know, I don't do palliative care all the time, but the palliative care I do definitely helps me with that and my job satisfaction, so, you know, there are realities to how much money you make and such, but how much is, is enough, and, you know, um, I think you'll be, there are a few anesthesiologists who only do palliative care. Um, there's a lot of anesthesiologists who do anesthesia and also do some palliative care, and many have worked out different arrangements at their own institutions. And yeah, you're not paid as much on the days you're doing your palliative care, but I'm paid enough on the days I'm doing an anesthesiologist to be able to support my family and to live the life that we want. So I'm, I'm okay with then having the job satisfaction and the incredible career satisfaction to be doing the job that I want to do. So that's in a fee-for-service model. So let's think about the future. Let's think about how the American medical system is moving towards value-based care. Palliative care is a huge part when you're thinking about value-based care. So what are the outcomes that are tracked in value-based care? Things like quality of life, things like um, um, good mitigation of, um, of symptoms. Things like, well, you're getting surgeries when they are appropriate for the condition you have. And surgeries and who gets them and when are very being thoughtfully discussed and really implemented in in the right time at the right place for that person. And it's going to be multidisciplinary and interprofessional teams who are gonna be needed to care for these patients. And really thinking about that, is there really such a thing as discharge in that universe? There's not, because we're all, people who require medical care for the whole continuum of our life. And particularly when you're thinking about value-based care and value-based metrics, it's incentivizing to keep people feeling good. You know, well when you can, but even if you have chronic disease, living as good as you can and being thoughtful about when interventions are really going to improve that. And palliative care is a big part of that. One of the things that's challenging with palliative care is it's cost savings. And that's been shown in study after study when it's measured, when you start, doing palliative care practices and involving palliative care specialists, people typically are thinking more about what procedures they're getting and costs are less. So it's saving the healthcare system money, but that's always a little bit harder to show in cost models than saying, hey, I did X, Y, Z, and then we made more money. Um, And it's not the reason you do palliative care. You do palliative care because it's better care. You know, one of my closest colleagues and mentors, Tom Smith at Johns Hopkins, says you know, palliative care is better care, and it also happens to cost less.
1: Changing gears a bit to focus on the training involved, Dr. Ozikson, would you mind giving us a 10,000-foot view of what a fellowship in hospice and palli- palliative medicine might look like?
0: So as far as palliative care subspecialty training, the fellowship is a one-year fellowship. It typically will be primarily in adults, although the, there can be rotations in peds as well. It's typically split between hospice, um, like a rotation, but then also um, uh, inpatient palliative care as well as outpatient palliative care provision. Some programs will have home based palliative care. There's certainly different um, electives that can be had and done. Um, and it's one year rotation, it's one year fellowship. There are a few pioneering programs, University of Colorado has one of them, where people can essentially work over uh, two years, get a master's and become palliative care boarded potentially through that pathway. The first class was literally started last year, so it's a brand new program, but we have such a shortage of palliative care subspecialists that there's definitely an interest of how do we get more people appropriately trained and boarded, even if fellowship's not a possibility for them for a number of reasons.
1: Dr. Hunsberger, as the most recent recipient of certifications in both anesthesiology and hospice and palliative medicine, what parallels did you draw specifically in your training between anesthesiology and hospice and palliative medicine? And what were some of the notable differences? And of those differences, which would be the most beneficial in anesthesiology training if it could be incorporated into it?
2: One of the parallels that I really enjoy is the pain and symptom management. I think that's something we are really well suited for in anesthesia. I really enjoy taking care of patients' pain. Um, I hate to see patients suffering as so many of us do as physicians. So I feel like we as anesthesiologists are super capable of using the medicines that we use in the operating room and taking them to the floor or to a patient's home in order to alleviate their suffering. We understand the pharmacology of the medications, we understand their interactions, and so we're 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 really experts in some of those medications. I think especially at end of life or with palliative sedation, we don't do to you use too much palliative sedation, but certainly at end of life when patients are really suffering, um, sometimes patients and their families will say, I really want to have good pain control without being sleepy. That's a super hard thing for anybody to do, but I think we are really specialized in understanding the mechanisms of actions of our medications to try to achieve those goals. So that's, that's something that I've really enjoyed. And that's something that I take into my hospice and palliative medicine, like um, training and practice. I think one of the differences is the communication part. As anesthesiologists, we are taught to communicate about our consents. Um, sometimes we get some communication practice in how to give bad news to patients, but I feel like that is that that's really the limit of our communication. I think we could do better at communicating. I think if we can work at our communications with our patients, our patients' families, they'll have a better understanding of who and what we can offer them. And also um, communicating uh, poor outcomes, we can do better at communicating that. And I think we can also just in general do better at communicating with our colleagues and in the operating room. I can think of an example is that most of the time, we're kind of the person behind the curtain as an anesthesiologist. We hopefully have good relationships in the room, but there are times when we need to pull the surgeon aside and have good communications about the pros and cons of anesthesia for a particular patient, given their comorbidities and and being present for those really important conversations. So I think hospice and palliative medicine training really works on communication. And I think that's something that we can take to anesthesia.
1: The next thing I wanna talk about is the increased incorporation of training in hospice and palliative medicine inside the confines of an anesthesiology residency. You referred, as I did, to the 2020 um, monitor in November, um, in which you offered your definition and justification for palliative care. In the same issue, Dr. Mbechi Irandu, an anesthesiology resident at Baylor at the time, wrote a piece praising her elective palliative care experience. In it, she called for a full-length rotation, at the very least available to all anesthesiology residents, and even went so far as to say it should be required for all residents. Being an academic center, um, do you see many residents pursuing additional experiences in palliative care
0: Now, as far as different residency training programs, what I've seen is it's very um, dependent on the place and dependent on the individuals who are there. Um, I have certainly interacted with some residency program directors who welcome um, house staff choosing to use some elective time to do palliative care. It's often challenging because um, there's uh, a lot of palliative care programs, even at academic institutions uh, and training institutions are smaller. They may not have space for a lot of learners, so it's not like they could have every anesthesia resident rotating through. And I got to say, even at our own palliative care um, inpatient practice at Stanford, um, we only have space for one learner at a time. And we have requests from um, the Department of Medicine, the Department of Neurology, multiple different fellowship programs. So it's... um, you know, you have to apply for months in advance to be able to get palliative care time because the subspecialty teams, um, just we don't have space to be able to train, you know, a bunch of people. So, um, uh, so that can be very much a limited resource at different programs. Um, if people are interested in doing that, I absolutely encourage them to talk to their residency program director and exp- tell them why and, and to explore what could be the opportunities to do that at their own institution. Um, as far as requiring it, um, I am not a residency program director, I certainly have colleagues who are, and there are many rotations and, you know, it's a limited, it's a fixed sum um, denominator, you're not getting more months. So anytime you're adding something you're taking it away from something else. So what's the balance in that? Is there going to be less time um, doing urologic anesthesia to be able to make room for palliative anesthesia? Or, you know, is it an exchange for one of the pain anesthesia weeks or something like that? So, you know, it, it's very thoughtful discussions that need to happen. I am certainly a fan of empowering um, with, with some guardrails in place of empowering residency programs to be able to work with the residents that are there to be able to create teaching programs that are catered to the interests and needs of that resident, and if their interests and needs are in palliative care, I certainly hope that residency directors and uh, would be able to meet that and um, be able to be open to that possibility and to help provide it, given the constraints of their own environment.
1: Well, we are about out of time. So I'm going to go ahead and offer up a summary to our listeners of what we seem to have covered today. Uh, Let me start off with um, Again, just going over uh, a loose definition of hospice and palliative medicine being separated into three parts, that is attentive symptom management, the psychosocial support of the family, which is particularly evident um, with pediatric patients, uh, as well as expert communication. We talked about how hospice care is a distinct domain inside of palliative medicine, but you can be a palliative medicine physician and not practice hospice care. Um, we also talked about how there's plenty of crossover between the disciplines of anesthesiology and palliative medicine, and that patients as well as healthcare providers can only benefit from increased practice of palliative medicine, be it on a primary level, as uh, Dr. Oslikson um, really focused on with leaning into it. Um, or um, as a subspecialist, such as uh, both of our our guests here today. Um, And finally, anesthesiologists, out of all healthcare providers um, have much to gain and offer um, to and from hospice and palliative medicine by incorporating it into their training as well as their practice, but obviously some limitations do apply. Any last closing comments?
0: Just I'm so excited for anesthesiologists to know more about palliative care and really to understand what it is, understand that you already do a lot of palliative care as an anesthesiologist in your day-to-day practice. Recognize it, embrace it, lean into it, and especially if you enjoy that part of what you do, learn more and get even better at it. Um, And so I really, this is an opportunity for anesthesiologists to be leaders in the field, particularly when you're thinking about perioperative palliative care who's doing that? Nobody's really stepping into that space very prominently. What a great space for anesthesiologists. We could do that so well. And going back to some of what's been said now for over a decade, I'm thinking of David Warner's Rubenstein lecture from 2008 for the ASA, where there really was, he talks about an emphasis of anesthesiologists certainly having careers in the OR, but also beyond the OR. And how are we perioperative physicians? How are we perioperative practitioners? How do we think about Not just are they going to get through the surgery well, but how do we optimize their quality of life before surgery, during surgery, and after? What does it mean to return after surgery to the life that you want to have after that? How do we minimize um, perioperative cognitive decline? How do we minimize perioperative reduction related reductions in quality of life? Those are all spaces that anesthesiologists can really step in, work in, and make a difference in. And palliative care is a wonderful toolkit to be able to work in that space in a unique and evidence-informed way. I would just encourage anesthesiologists to think about it. And if it appeals to you, lean into what you already do um, and then learn more, particularly if it interests
1: you. Dr. Hunsberger? No? Okay. Well, Dr. Zazelson, Dr. Hunsberger, thank you so much for taking the time to um, talk about hospice and palliative medicine um and offer your expertise and so much information i really really appreciate your time thank you so much
2: thanks for having us
1: thank you for having me
0: hey everyone thanks so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this podcast
1: if you have ideas for future podcasts please reach out to us via email at go at uky.edu Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.